0: In the diversity of creation, God has gifted some with extraordinary senses. Take the sense of sight, for example. The chameleon's eyes can move independent one another. Taken together, they can have about a 360-degree range. The chameleon can see behind him. The nocturnal gecko can see 350 times better than you and I can. They have no eyelids, sadly, so they must clean their eyes with their tongue. The two eyes of the four-eyed fish are split. They can see simultaneously above the water and below the water at the water's surface. The eyes of the colossal squid are the largest of any creature. They're about the size of a football, and the largest eye of the land animal is that of the Ostrich, whose eye is bigger than its brain. (laughs) You see, God's creation is absolutely amazing. And God has also given you and I, the human creature, two eyes, with which we can see. In fact, they're the outgrowth of the brain. At six weeks during pregnancy, the eyes form from the brain. But I want you to know this morning that God has given you a spiritual eyesight as well. It is more than the physical eyes that are part of our body, but it is a spiritual way of seeing. And what I mean by that is that you have an ability to see in ways that no other creature does. God created you a physical being. We know this. We have a body, we have eyes, and so on. There are other aspects to you and I, the human creature. There is a a social aspect and a mental aspect and an emotional aspect and so on. But God has given you and I a spiritual aspect also. It is going to be something we call the soul or the spirit. And it has the capacity to see or not to see. And what I mean by see is, is to know God, to receive his word and, and to understand his gospel. Just listen to how Jesus describes the purpose of one man's job. He, he speaks of what Paul would, would go and do for him in his kingdom. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive Forgiveness of sins. You see, something in here is dark. Something in here is blind. Something inside is closed off to God and it it resists his word. It resists the Bible. But God has made a way for us to see. For what is in here for the soul to see. And to understand then how we can be made right with God. To understand our sin and our separation from God. And to see something God calls salvation. I'm going to share that with you this morning. And this is a message of hope for you. It's a message that's going to come through what we would say is a dark hole in the ground. It's a message of hope that comes through a woman who is free of demons, but not free from fear. It's a message of hope that comes through two men who always seem to be competing. And it's a message of hope whose main character isn't even in the story. He's presumed dead, then missing, and in that order. It's a message this morning about sight. It's what you can see and what difference that makes in your life. It's a message from John chapter 20. Jonathan read that a moment ago. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. And what we will do here this morning is ask three simple questions about our sight. Do I see? Do I observe? Do I believe? This message, of course, concerns the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is that Jesus died and was buried and rose again from the dead. We do celebrate Resurrection Sunday today. After all, it was on this day, some 2,000 years ago, that the tomb was discovered empty. I want to begin the first two verses here with asking the simple question Do I see? This question comes from the word Saul in verse 1. I'm going to explain this significance in a moment. The first two verses of John 20 give the perspective that morning from, uh, the, the, from a woman named Mary Magdalene. This is the first day of the week. We mentioned that. It's Sunday. It's the third day since Jesus died. You might recall that he was crucified on Friday. That may sound like bad math, but just know that the Jewish people kept time differently than we do. Sundown began a new day, not at midnight or not when we get up in the morning, as we might say. They also counted partial days as full days sometimes. So to break this down, Jesus died on a Friday, that's day one. He was in the tomb on Saturday, day two. And at sundown Saturday, it became Sunday, day three. On Sunday, Mary came to the tomb. What is a tomb? A tomb is a home for dead people. First century tombs, they varied in size and in design. Uh, the tomb in verse 1, the tomb where Jesus laid, would have been a very small room. It would have been painstakingly cut into rock. We're going to get a sense of the size of this tomb in the last few verses. It probably was in the shape of a U with, with three different places for a body or a corpse to lie inside this tomb. It'd be a family tomb where you could put family members inside. The opening would have been very small, maybe three feet by three feet. That's about the width of a door, tall and and wide. And the door of this would have been a very large stone. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they also record the account of the resurrection. Mark calls the stone extremely large. That's what makes the sight of verse 1 all the more shocking. Mary saw the stone already taken from the tomb. This account was originally written in the Greek language, and the word for taken away means lift up or take up or, or pick up. I mean, you think about it on that level, it's, it's one thing to move a massive stone. It's quite another if this stone is, is moved apart from its track and laying on its side. And that's like you walking out to your car in the morning and it's laying on its side. Like, what has happened here? Who has done this? This is impossible. And this adds to this bizarre, even eerie morning. Look what time it is. Mary came early to the tomb while it was still dark. Mary's alone. The grave had been opened overnight. Only a group of men could have moved a stone that size. It's dark. I mean, Can can you feel the sensation that John is trying to create as he describes this scene? He does this often in his gospel. He likes to, to use the backdrop of events to try to create a sensation. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus was persecuted by the Jews. John writes, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple. You can hear him playing off the season that Jesus is in to to describe the icy reception from the Jews. The night he was betrayed by Judas. John writes, after Judas received the bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. It was a dark deed he committed. And here we are now, it's dark, there's a tomb, and I'll tell you this morning that Mary Magdalene wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Luke records that Jesus healed her. This would have been a few years ago when she first came in contact with Jesus. She was demon-possessed. This is a good reminder to all of us that, that we don't need to come to Jesus fixed. We don't come to Jesus altogether. We don't come to Jesus sinless, that's impossible. We come to Jesus with all kinds of problems and all kinds of sins. Those are the people that Jesus receives and those are the people that Jesus heals. And when Mary did this, he cast out seven demons from her. Don't let that get lost on you. This isn't some kind of fairy tale fiction. This woman lived in some kind of hell Her life was torture. Reading these accounts of demonic possession in the Bible, we encounter all kinds of layers of problems. Some of them suffered convulsions, those who were demon-possessed. Others, various diseases. One man was blind and mute because of demon possession. There's another man who was running around screaming, harming his body. And when one possessed boy saw Jesus... He fell to the ground, and he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And his father tells Jesus that this demon tries to throw him into the fire and tries to drown him. Jesus freed Mary from all of these afflictions and all of this torture. He liberated her. And Mary loved Christ. It was no chore for her to come out early to the tomb. Her life changed, and and even two days ago on on that Friday, she stood by his crucifixion and watched him pass. And now she visits his final resting place. Look at verse 2. Here we learn how she interpreted this scene. She's heartbroken. At this empty tomb, she, like other disciples, did not believe that Jesus would rise again. Now, Jesus taught it. He was trying to teach his disciples this through his ministry. He said that he would, but they just, they didn't put it all together, not yet anyway. So what does Mary think? What's the normal reaction when one sees this? Someone stole the body. Now, so you know, this isn't unheard of in in first century Palestine. Grave robbing was a real problem, so much so that uh, one of the emperors of the Roman Empire, Claudius, he made a decree that that anyone who would steal bodies would be killed. There's a death penalty for this. If the Roman emperor has to step in and and decree that, you know it's a problem in the land. Often, valuables or, or expensive belongings would be buried with a body So grave robbing was attractive to thieves. You could go in there at night, it's dark. No one's guarding every tomb in the land. Can help ourselves to some of the goods. And Mary sees this open tomb, and what does she do? She takes off running. Just consider here how she's feeling at this moment. This is like you honoring a loved one, one who has passed away. It's three days after the funeral, and you go back to the grave. And there, there's a hole in the ground. Someone has dug up the tomb. It's gone. It's not in the hole anymore. And someone's knocked over the gravestone. How would that make you feel? That's what Mary's feeling as she's running from the tomb, this desecration of the Lord and his body. And all of these emotions are surging as she is sprinting. She's barreling towards Jerusalem to talk to the disciples. Now, keep in mind, there are no cell phones in this day. She can't text them to tell them what's happening at the tomb. If they're going to find out, she's got to run and she's got to tell them in person. I imagine she's there. She's wheezing. She's out of breath. She's trying to get this out and tell Peter and John what she just saw. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary has some understanding of what just happened, of what transpired with the Lord. Verse 1, she saw the stone taken away. This is the first time in our account this morning that someone saw something. It's going to occur three more times to where finished with our 10 verses, and three different Greek words are going to be used, and we're going to talk about why that's significant. Here in verse 1, Mary simply saw. She took notice of. She became aware of. She recognized. That's how we would define that word. On a physical level, Mary certainly saw. She saw a stone removed, and she saw an empty tomb. But what about that deeper level? What about that spiritual level? We're talking at a soul level here, a spiritual sight, see what's not here, there's no corpse, there's no death, there's no Jesus. I want to ask you this morning, do you see? Do you have some basic understanding of who Jesus is? Do you have some content, some information about him, that he is God who took on flesh, that he lived a sinless life? That he died for your sin. That this Jesus rose from the dead. And that he forgives all who come to him in faith, believing. And that there is no name under heaven by which men must be saved. Do you see an empty tomb? And do you know the man who left that tomb? That's our first question this morning. Do you see? Secondly, do I observe? In verses 3 through, 3 through 7, do I observe? Sounds like a similar question, but there's some differences here. This question is going to be asked of, of a deeper spiritual insight. We're going to see that in verse 6. Peter and this, quote, other disciple react to this news Mary brings. In verse 3 Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Now here, two disciples come and they see things for themselves. A disciple is just another word for a student or a a follower of Jesus Christ. We might say that this man, Peter, became the most outspoken of all of Jesus' disciples. There were 12. During the ministry of Jesus, we might call him the the leader of the disciples or the, the leader of the 12. But our second disciple here is a little more secretive. A little more anonymous in his identity, isn't he? In verse 2, he calls himself the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Sounds a little arrogant, doesn't it? This disciple loved Jesus more than Peter. Now, to be clear, Jesus loved all of his disciples. In John chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, I'm not sure we can know why the disciple spoke this way. I don't think we should assume the worst about him. Perhaps the, the love of the Lord really meant a lot to him, and that's how he referred to himself. Perhaps circumstances necessitated that he used some kind of anonymous name. And maybe it's just the opposite. Maybe it's not arrogance, but humility. Maybe he doesn't want a lot of fanfare for being someone who is close to the Lord and and the attention that might bring him. But if we put all the evidence together, this seems to point to a man named John as the anonymous disciple who was also the author of this gospel. Later in chapter 21, verse 24, we learn that it was John who wrote this book, a book appropriately called John. John. Beginning about halfway through this book, something interesting begins to happen with these two men. There's a contrast between Peter and John. In chapter 13, John's reclining by Jesus at the Last Supper. And Peter summons him to ask Jesus a question as though he has to go through John to get this question to Jesus. In chapter 18, John has access to the house where one of the trials of Jesus takes place. Peter needs to go through him to get access into that courtyard, into that house. That's the scene, by the way, where Peter denies him three times. In chapter 21, John's going to recognize a resurrected Jesus standing on the shore. Peter and John will be in a boat. John recognizes him and tells Peter, who dives into the water and swims to shore to see Jesus, Jesus. And in today's passage, the two run to the tomb. John gets there first, but Peter enters first. I notice again here for a moment, if we may, the type of people God redeems. God redeems all kinds of people. It doesn't matter what your personality may be. It's not based on your skill set. Hallelujah, it's not about SAT scores. Jesus redeems all types of people. And Peter and John, they were very different men. John, for example, may have been more athletic. Maybe he had better connections. Maybe he had a more subdued approach. Jesus redeemed him. If Peter's more erratic or more impulsive, if Peter fails Christ out of a fear of man and he gets a little nosy, well, Jesus redeems him. That's to say that Jesus resurrects all kinds of souls, including yours and including mine. Well, when these two get the news about the tomb, they're off. The Kentucky Derby has not produced Mustangs like these two men. <laughs> Listen to the build up, verse 3. They went forth. They were going. They were running. That's a trot a gallop a sprint these two could not get to the tomb fast enough that morning there's an escalation in this in verse 4 John has pulled out ahead and he arrives at the tomb first tradition by the way holds John to be the younger of the two church records uh, church history records John dying in his 90s it means he would have outlived the other disciples and we also observe in the, in the gospels that when Peter began following Jesus he was already married assuming he may have been a little older. That means that some believe the younger of the two would have been the faster of the two, youth being that deciding factor in the foot race. But in verse 5, John stops short. The text says he was stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings lying there. He saw, that's the exact same word we saw back in verse 1. Mary saw John saw. John took notice of them. John became aware of them. John recognized him. I mean, here he is outside this tomb, this cold stone. He's kneeling down. He's looking in this small opening. There's no stone anymore. He's probably peering into the darkness. Remember, there's no electricity to flip on the light. Maybe just a little glint of light as the sun's coming up, probably catching his breath. He sees the linen wrappings, but he sees no body. Now uh, Remember, when, when Jesus was buried, he was wrapped in linen wrappings. If you could imagine the Egyptian mummy, it's that type of a, of a wrapping that would have been over most of the body of Jesus. But now look at verse 6. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. Peter doesn't have a brake pedal. When he arrives at the tomb, he is in the tomb. And there Peter is, standing in the midst of this cold tomb, and he's getting a close-up. He's a lot closer to what's going on than John is outside peering in. In chapter 19, earlier in John, John records that Nicodemus brought about 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes, and he would have packed it into these linen wrappings. So this tomb doesn't stink, it's probably quite the opposite. And this would have been an overpowering scent. But the point of our text this morning is sight, right? What we see. And what does Peter see? On a literal, physical level. And what does he see on a deeper, spiritual level? In verse 6, he saw. In fact, in our English Bibles, it's the exact same word that's been used so far. It's used of John in verse 5. John saw linen wrappings lying there. Peter saw linen wrappings lying there. But in the original language, the word changes. It means saw. I mean, don't get me wrong, but it means more than that. Peter has observed. Peter has perceived. Peter has given a sustained attention This is the same word, if you're familiar, with the woman at the well back in John 4. In that passage, Jesus is speaking to a woman who is at a well, and he's telling her all about her life, and she's taking all of this in, what kind of a man this is, and the things that he knows about her, and she says, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. That's the same word used of Peter in this passage. If you're flipping through a magazine and you're glancing at the pages, that's the word we've already seen. It's that quick look. But here, it's standing back at artwork and stopping and taking it in. That's the difference. We do, in fact, get our English word theater from this word. And it may help for you to imagine yourself just sitting in a theater, focused on the stage, just taking in everything that's going on for two hours or whatever it may be. It's that depth, it's that level of seeing. This is Peter in the tomb 2,000 years ago. This is no theft. No one has taken the Lord. We know that when Jesus was buried, a cloth covered his face. What does Peter see? It's not clumped up lying on the floor, it's folded neatly It's tidy. It's off here to the side. What does that tell us? There's a carefulness about it. There's a calmness about it. There's a control in this. No one has stolen his body. Those linen wrappings are probably lying there, something like a deflated cocoon. Jesus is not here. Peter sees that on a physical level, but he sees more than that in his soul. We mentioned earlier that grave robbing was a very popular thing in this time. And it would have been difficult for for Peter to quickly eliminate this as an option. Grave robbers did not come and and take this body. The linen wrappings would have been worth something. All of those myrrhs and aloes, they would have been worth something. I mean, if this were a robbery, it's like a, a jewelry store heist where someone comes and takes all the rings but leaves all the boxes, I mean, who makes your bed when they burglarize your home? Peter understands that this is is, is no robbery, that something more has taken place here. Something remarkable has happened. We would ask it this way, do you observe? There's an exchange that happens in a book entitled A Scandal in Bohemia. It's a book written by a man named Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And in that book... Dr. Watson is amazed at the ability of Sherlock Holmes and his ability to comprehend the world around him. And Watson says, I could not help laughing at the ease with which he explained his process of deduction. When I hear you give your reasons, I remark, the thing always appears to me to be so ridiculously simple that I could easily do it myself. Though with each successive instance of your reasoning, I am baffled until you explain your process. And yet I believe that my eyes are as good as yours. That's like Peter and John, right? Like they're looking at the same things. Quite so, says Sherlock, lighting a cigarette, throwing himself down into an armchair. You see, but you do not observe, he says. The distinction is clear. For example, you frequently have seen the steps which lead from the hall up into this room. Watson says, frequently. Sherman says, Sherlock says, How often? Watson replies, well, some hundreds of times, and how many are there? asks Sherlock. How many? I don't know. He says, quite so. You have not observed. And yet you have seen. That is just my point. Now I know that there are 17 steps because I have both seen and observed. Uh, See, I like this example because not only did Sherlock see the steps, but he observed the steps. He knew the number of steps. Perhaps he understood the wood grain and the color and the nosing and all the flaws in the wood. My point here is that there is a difference between seeing and observing. And there's a difference when it comes to Jesus Christ between seeing him and observing him with the eyes of our heart. Peter saw. Peter observed. How about you? Have you observed Jesus Christ? Have you perceived Jesus Christ? Maybe this morning you grew up hearing Bible stories. Maybe you always went to Sunday school. Maybe you never miss youth group. You see the facts, you have the knowledge, but do you perceive? Does your understanding of Jesus move past just basic facts? Does it move past knowledge about who He is and what He did? Have you gone below the surface? That might be another way to ask it. Or have you gotten real with Jesus Christ? Not only do I understand things about him, but I know things about this Jesus. And they're registering with me. I'm moving from some common knowledge about him. I'm moving along something called a relationship with him. Thinking about him. I'm meditating about him. I'm in that theater and it's just me and Jesus Christ. Do you see? Do you observe? Uh, Thirdly, we need to ask this morning in our final few verses, do I believe? Do I believe? A shift has taken place in our account, and this faith or belief, it blossoms from what is known about Jesus. In verse 8, the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. In verse 8, John saw and believed. And this is the third word we saw for believe, the third word we see for saw this morning. Again, it appears in English in verse 8, as he saw. We keep seeing that pop up in English. But again, this is a different word. And it means something just a little bit different than what we've seen so far. John entered the tomb. He came in alongside Peter. Like Peter, he saw or he noticed. But here is why this matter of sight, it escalates in verse 8. Look at the word that John puts beside it. He saw and what? Believed. He saw and believed. This is so important because throughout John's gospel, he's been talking about seeing and believing, pairing these two together. Back in John chapter 2, when people saw the signs that Jesus performed, they believed. In John 9, Jesus healed a man. When he saw, he believed. That's a good illustration, by the way, of of what we're talking about today, where there is a physical sight but also a spiritual sight. In John 11, those who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, they believed. But this isn't just about seeing signs either. Because in John 12, many see the signs Jesus performs, but they do not believe. Some say that they'll believe if they see a miracle. Show me a sign, God, and I'll believe. But that's not true. Because people don't believe because they won't believe. What's most curious about our passage is how this word belief is used. Remember, John is already a disciple. He's already following Jesus. Jesus is Lord of his life. So what's going on with this belief that John speaks of? Well, I think we can understand first that this would have been a limited belief. In verse 9, John speaks... um, both for himself and for Peter, he says, they, together in the third person, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again. Again, Peter and John didn't comprehend everything about Jesus. They're still putting things together that he taught. And by the way, this morning, this means that you don't have to have it all figured out to get right with God this morning. You don't need to have all the nuances of theology. Um, You don't need to know all the books of the Bible You don't need to have it all figured out to be made right through Jesus Christ. Just a basic understanding of Jesus and and who you are and who he is. uh, The the basics of of salvation, understanding forgiveness through confession. You can be made right with Jesus. It's an encouragement. Secondly, because John believed without seeing the resurrected Christ. (laughs) Remember, The main character in our story isn't even in the story. This is all about Jesus, but he's nowhere to be found. We're not going to meet him or see him in the text this morning. But remember, John's eyes, his eyes never see him. Yet in his heart, in his soul, he sees. That means that you don't need to see Jesus this morning to believe in him. In fact... Over 2,000 years of church history, almost everyone who's believed in Jesus hasn't seen him. In verse 29, Jesus will say, Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Thirdly, we can observe here that that John's belief was based on God's word. John's going to sit down and write this book, this gospel, years later, and he's going to make a statement that he makes back in chapter 2, verse 22. When Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. In that passage, he spoke of his body as a temple. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. John would be able to reflect back on on this time here at the tomb and and he'd be able to put things together and begin to make sense of what happened. And he believed the Bible. You know, it, it, it made sense. It's The Bible is true, it's, it's a true north for you and I. A verse after verse after verse is truth in a world that doesn't always tell us the truth. What an Easter morning this would have been for Peter and for John and for Mary. In verse 10 we see they went away to their own homes, yet it's just the beginning of the rest of their lives. Well, For Mary, she would go on to obey Christ in the next few verses. She sees a man that she believes to be the gardener. That's something like a groundskeeper at a graveyard. And it's not until he says her name that she realizes that it's Jesus. Well, just imagine how that would have felt. The church history is silent on Mary. The last time we hear from her is down in verse 18, when she tells the disciples, I've seen the Lord. Peter would go on to die for Christ. He became a powerful preacher in the book of Acts. It's about the birth of the church. Jesus used him mightily to build his church. And Peter's going to go on to write two letters to churches, one of which we are following along through in our Sunday morning messages. Church history records that Peter died for his faith. He was crucified upside down, unworthy to die in the same way his Lord did. John would go on to live for Christ. He died in an old age when Christian leaders didn't tend to live all that long. Persecution was rampant and widespread early in the history of the church. And John will go on to write five letters. We now have them as books of our Bible, including the gospel we read this morning. In the end, John was exiled on an island called Patmos, left there for his faith. Ironically, it's a resort destination in this day. Jesus Christ would go on to build his church. And after 40 days, he ascended to heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God. He reigns and he rules and he's preparing to return again. Jesus has saved countless lives to this day, redeeming all kinds of people from all kinds of sin. Many of you this morning are a testimony to that. He does that this very hour. For those who have not yet experienced it, I ask you, do you see, do you observe, and do you believe? Today is the day to open your eyes and see the love of God through the sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, to move past facts, then observations, to real faith. Let's pray together. O Lord Jesus, you rule and you reign this morning. You rose from the dead, conquering death, defeating sin, and living to redeem all who come to you in faith and repentance. Thank you for that open invitation that stands this morning. I pray for each of us that we would turn from our sin and believe upon you that your Holy Spirit would do a work in our hearts to change us, to regenerate us, and to give us eyes to see. Lord, we love you. You are our salvation, our risen Christ. Amen.